In a world of career uncertainty, there is one variable you have total control over, yourself. Welcome to Forever Employable Stories, where expert digital transformation consultant and successful entrepreneur Jeff Gotthelf will share conversations with unique and inspiring individuals who have taken charge of their professional lives, leveraged their expertise, built an audience, and future-proofed their careers so you can learn how to do the same. Here's your host, Jeff Gotthelf. I have to admit that when I stumbled upon Jared Kirby's website, I was taken by surprise. The flag that he's planted, one based on sword mastery, choreographed on-screen and on-stage fighting and stunt work, isn't the first thing that comes to mind when I think about a forever employable career. But this is the true power of diving deep into a specific passion and creating thought leadership and recognized expertise around it. Jared fell in love with choreographed stage fighting at a Renaissance fair in Minnesota when he was only 15. Within five years, he was part of the same show and learning how to create compelling stories for audiences using what he'd learned working with this group and its leader. Stage fighting was exciting, but what about actual sword fighting? A friend of Jared's went to Edinburgh to learn exactly that. When he returned, he brought Jared his own sword. Jared had found his next passion. He moved to Edinburgh to learn how to use that sword and shortly thereafter met his next teacher, Maestro Martinez. It's through a series of remarkable teachers that Jared honed his craft and was able to create the kind of storytelling and career he'd always wanted. Listen to Jared's story now. So welcome back to another of my accidental podcast series called Forever Employable Stories. This episode I've been looking forward to for a long time as we were looking for folks to join us from in these stories from outside of tech, right? My background is always as tech, product management, design, looking for folks who can tell a forever employable story from outside of tech. We came across Jared Kirby and Jared graciously agreed to join us here today. Jared is a traditional fencing master and a fight director. Yes. Jared, thanks so much for uh, <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, the traditional fencing master side of things came about actually because of the fight directing, or more importantly at that time, stage combat. Stage combat? Yeah. When I was 15, I went to our Renaissance Fair in (laughs) Minnesota, where I grew up, and at noon, they had this huge chess match where people, instead of the knight taking pawn, they cleared the board and they had a fight. Uh Uh-huh. And I was blown away. I was like, what is this magic? Uh, and so I talked to performers afterwards and found out it was all choreographed ahead of time. And they were doing these sword fights live every day. I was like, <laughs> all right, I'm going to do that. Right. At 15, I made that decision. And I didn't know I meant it so literally, but small town in Minnesota grew up in. And so when I was done with high school and a little bit of college, I moved to the Twin Cities, sought out the fight director of that chess match and started training with him. And then a year after that, I was actually got cast in that very show. Oh, wow. Five years after I saw that human chess match, I was working in that human chess match. And in that five years, obviously, you finished high school, you did a little bit of college. And are you doing stuff to kind of take you in that direction? Are you studying? Are you taking classes? Like, what's happening? Oh, yeah. Yeah, constantly training with the fight director of that fair was a man named Michael Anderson. 
Uh And Don Preston was the other one that did a lot of the training. But once I started doing it, I loved it. To me, I was also an actor, so I was pursuing acting training. But the sword fighting and the stage combat and telling a story through violence is... At that time, I didn't have the verbiage to describe it that way. But when I look back, that's what I really loved about it. Not Mm -hmm. just the big knock them out, you know, blow stuff up kind of fights, but actually the ability to utilize violence as a storytelling tool. Mm. And that's where I've taken it now. And we'll talk more about that later. But I just loved it. And so I kept training, kept working on different weapons and refining my skill. And it was a gentleman there that I worked with a lot. And he's one of my best friends. He moved to Scotland for six months. And when he came back, he had met this group of people that were doing sword fighting for real. Mm-hmm. And that's the way we saw it, because our only application of sword fighting was in stage combat. Right. But these people that he met over there, Guy Windsor, Maestro Paul McDonald, Gareth Hunt, they were kitted up in masks and jackets with rapiers and long swords and hitting each other. Wow. And that just seemed insane. And of course, we did that then. So, <laughs> I always tell the story when he came back from Edinburgh, we had been, and this is how long ago it was, we were corresponding via mail. Mm-hmm. We were actually writing letters back and forth because that's how you did it in the 90s. And um, when he came back, he actually, I thought he was the best friend in the world because he brought me a sword. Oh, wow. That was his gift from Edinburgh. And it was only like half a decade ago I was talking to him. I was like, dude, I finally realized that, that was the most selfish gift you've probably ever given. Because if I didn't have a sword, we couldn't have trained. <laughs> so he came back and he hooked me. I had my own sword. He had his own. We started playing. And that really started the fencing side of things and pursuing historical fencing, wanting to do this as a, a martial art. So, yeah, long story short, after a couple of years working with him, I moved to Edinburgh also because oh. I needed a fencing master. I needed somebody to learn from. We is, were training. Is Edinburgh a hotspot for fencing? No, not necessarily. But again, right. think about the 90s. You didn't Google fencing masters and find anybody, <laughs> right. right? I'm in Minnesota and my buddy Tim comes back and says, these guys in Edinburgh are doing this. I don't know other people that are really doing this. You know, we were starting early web stuff. We were starting to connect other people, a guy in Germany, a guy in Australia, a guy in Arizona I was meeting. But this was actually... Uh, a perfect excuse to also live overseas. And that had been on my list anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, I packed up, moved to Edinburgh, and started training with him. Every week, there's a group called the Don Duelist Society that I trained with twice a week. And at the end of my stay there, that's where I met Maestro Martinez, who was from New York. And he's a traditional fencing master teaching Spanish rapier, which mm-hmm. I'd always been fascinated by. So I took a one and a half hour class with him at the seminar and it sealed the deal. Like I'd been thinking about moving to New York, maybe back to Minnesota. I didn't know exactly what to do, but this man was amazing. Spanish rapier was amazing. And I literally at the end of that class shook his hand and said, I'm going to move to New York and train with you. 
he, I'm sure he laughed afterwards. He was polite, <laughs> not laughing to my face, but the joke's on him because uh, it was five months after that handshake. I was in his fencing academy. Right. That was over 20 years ago. Been there ever since, training, teaching, became a fencing master, certified through him four years ago. Wow. And the thing that hooked me with him is that it's a martial art, right? I'd only ever seen fencing as a sport, you know, the Olympic sport, but that's only a hundred years old, sport fencing. We spent in Europe, we spent thousands of years killing each other with swords. <laughs> there was that, yeah. We developed complex martial arts systems in order to do that. Right. And that's the way that I teach sword work. Got it. Today, so, I mean, you're teaching sword fighting normally, right? That's kind of the main thing. But you've done a lot more than that. You've taken this knowledge and this expertise and you've branched out far beyond just you know, teaching people how to sword fight. What more yeah. have you done? Well, in the fight directing side of things, what I was able to do, because I had these two passions that felt very opposite, right? Martial arts with swords and stage and screen combat. The reality of fighting with a sword to defend yourself, studying it as a martial art, and complete pretend. So what I was able to do was take these what seems like opposites and really bring together the common denominators. And that helped both clarify my passions, but then let me see the symmetry between them and bring benefits of each into both. So for example, having the martial arts knowledge of how to really use a rapier and then taking that to choreographed fight scenes Mm -hmm. And choreographing from a martial foundation, it grounds the fight in a reality that no audience member understands cognitively. Right. But that's not our point. We're not engaging people's minds with theater and, and camera work. We're engaging their heart and their soul. And on a visceral level, every human understands that looks more real. They'll never be able to tell you why. Right. right, But they will watch a fight that I choreograph and they'll know that that's based in reality, even when it's fantastical. Uh, so, amazing. Uh, and, so you're, and so you're teaching, you're teaching fighting, you're teaching stage and screen, you're combining these two things. You're doing your own stunt work, correct? So, yes, yeah, stunts is its own category. So with the fight directing I do, that's like indie films and theater, which New York is rich with. And then a few years back, I made a commitment to professional stunt work as well. With that, I'm much newer in that realm because it really is its own thing. So when I'm training people for stage and screen combat, I'm looking at actors and training them. Uh, it's almost a, an acting base, right? We talk about actable choices from the reality of how the human body reacts to dying or a gut wound, right? Mm -hmm. And then we pull out and extract the actable choices. So when I'm teaching or choreographing, that's the group that I'm working with. Stunts is its own thing. Mm -hmm. And so I feel very fortunate to have, once again, my story is always begins with an amazing teacher. 
if you're going to do something incredible, you need to have someone to teach you that, but also to help guide you. And I feel very fortunate. The stuntman in New York named Chaz Menendez, he started a stunt school and it was actually uh, somebody referred me there and he got my head screwed on straight and started training there. Mostly at that time, I just wanted some place for me to train because I was doing a lot of teaching, a lot of choreographing. But I really loved what I was learning there and decided to pursue that as well. And if I saw correctly, you've also done either a little bit of editing, a little bit of writing. Is that correct as well? Yeah, I actually... <laughs> I have four or five books out. Wow. Again, mostly though stuff nobody would want to read unless you're in this area. Like the right. first one, have you watched The Princess Bride? Of course. Okay. Of course. Thank God we can still talk. Religion um, in my house. Yeah, yeah. We know, that. <laughs> we know it by heart. Yes. Awesome. So you know that you can find that Tybalt cancels Capafaro. Well, Capafaro was this, when I found out those were real fencing masters uh -huh. that encouraged my historical research and so my first book is a translation of Capafaro's treatise from 1610 that okay. I worked on with my fencing masters amazing um, amazing yeah it's great but it's just dense reading historical fencing treatises are like they're treatises they're written for an educated <laughs> 17th century no less yeah yeah so <laughs> It's like picking up a medical journal. If right. you don't know the jargon, you're just going to be like, okay, this, yeah, cool. <laughs> I actually just submitted a manuscript for my next book, which is co-authored with a director friend of mine on staging Shakespeare's violence. And oh. we're going through and two-volume set, we're covering all of not just the explicit violence that is clear in the script. There's a lot of implied violence, mm -hmm. right? Where a character just says, why did you strike me? Clearly, we need to choreograph a punch, right? Hamlet says at the beginning, as he chases after the ghost, hold off thy hand. Well, you better have Marcellus holding on to him then, right? right. But I think the book is extremely valuable because we also cover potential violence. Uh-huh all these opportunities where you can use the violence as a storytelling tool, enhance the scene through violence. Uh, that's, that's super interesting. And look, I have to tell you, and I don't know if I'm going to say something offensive to somebody with this expertise, but I think in my just sort of consumer, non-expert opinion, I think that the sword fight scene in The Princess Bride is the greatest sword fight in all of movies. The whole thing is just... I oh. highly doubt you're going to piss anybody off with that. Right? I, was just I was just worried about you, I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> well, I talk about it a lot, right? Because without yeah. that movie and without that very fight scene, I don't know if I would have started researching historical fencing as early as I did. It was right. very pivotal to my early development. So what I say about that is I'll put one of two hats on, right? As a traditional fencing master, when I watch the moves that they're doing with those swords, it's awful. Like, they're not even trying to hit each other most of the time. Yeah. But as a fight director, I hold up that fight scene as the epitome of 
uh, we have some basic rules that choreography in a fight should follow. Like a fight should always reveal character. Mm. Perfect, right? You learn so much about both of them. A fight is a story in and of itself. So when you choreograph it, it should have a beginning, a middle, a climax, and an mm. end. Brilliant. Yeah. Right? Every part of that side of things and with what he's doing with what they know about sword fighting at that time. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And the whole thing's amazing. And they switch hands in the middle. And it's like, I'm not left-handed. There's something you should know, right? Anyway, I, I love it. So I'm glad you brought that up. In the book, Forever Employable, I talk about some of the qualities that it takes to become forever employable, qualities like entrepreneurialism and continuous learning and improvement, self-confidence and reinvention. Not in that order in the book. I just said them completely out of order, which is okay. I want to talk to you about a couple of those, not all of them, but there's a few that, that I think are relevant to your story. And I'd love to get your take on it. The first one I want to talk about is self-confidence. From my external perspective, it feels like there's a tremendous amount of self-confidence that has to come to place yourself, even in a choreographed fight, and then ultimately to take on this, most folks see as a sport, right? And really kind of dig deep into it and then bring it back in a variety of different ways to kind of increase awareness of it, increase your employability, frankly, and other things. Can you share a story from your past that helped you develop your self-confidence to really kind of explore this path? Sure, yeah. I will bring it back to those great teachers, mm -hmm. right? As a, a teacher, I often talk about the stages of learning. Everybody starts off in unconscious incompetence when you begin something new. You just don't know how bad you are at it because <laughs> you've never done it before. I know. And, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the sooner you can move to conscious incompetence, that's when you can start to grow. And it's also a level a lot of people have a hard time with because they don't want to recognize consciously how bad they are at it. Right. Then you move to conscious competence. And that's once your skills have developed, you can do everything, but you still have to think about it. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately your goal is unconscious competence. Right. So you don't need to think about these things. And I think having a great teacher is necessary for that. I came to Maestro Martinez with a lot of illusions, a lot of my own thoughts about this. And my greatest growth came from shutting up and just doing the work. But you need a guide, you need a teacher to provide that path, and then you've got to walk it. And that's one of the things that is really difficult for people, to fight that ego and just shut up and do the work. Yeah. Now, when I say that, you also have to have a huge ego in order to do something like this. But I don't use ego in the way people mean think about it. I don't mean egotistical. Mm -hmm. I mean the way that you think about yourself. You have to have a big ego. You have to care about yourself. And you have to be pursuing something for yourself. Right. I often tell people part of why I do what I've done and I've built this career the way that I have is because I simply pursued my passions with zeal. Mm. And by doing that, I didn't think about making a career out of this. 
I just knew that I had to do this. And when I find something that I have to do, then I do it. This last book's a perfect example where I talked to my co-author, Seth Dewar, the artistic director of the York Shakespeare Company. I talked to him about it 10 years ago. Right. And it's a lot of work and neither of us wanted to do it. And so I've spent at least five, six years telling everybody that this book needed to be written, telling them to write it. Hey, you should do this. And nobody did it. So we finally sat down and we did the work Yeah, because it has to be done. To be able to write a book about Shakespeare that has never been written before in the history of Shakespeare, yeah. it had to be done. I had to pursue stunt work once I met Chaz and had that teacher in my life. I had to do the fencing. Teaching is somewhere that I find myself today as I've developed a, some expertise and experience and I find myself basically being a teacher and trying to always become a great teacher. I really like what you said about teachers giving you the self-confidence to then explore your potential and kind of lay out the framework and then give you the space to go and realize that that's success. And you're a teacher yourself. I- I'm curious about this. What do you think makes a great teacher? Just out of curiosity. Like, what, like these folks that you've learned from, the way that you teach today, and of what two or three qualities do you think make for a great teacher? Wow. An amazing teacher can see that part of you which is invisible to yourself. So they're able to recognize. For example, you know, I didn't have the easiest life growing up. So I'll never forget, I trained a little bit with one teacher who looked at me and they could see that I had the potential to do great things and also awful things, Mm -hmm. right? That's up to the individual to determine which path they pursue in their life. But I have the potential to do either here in that teacher. And he started telling other people to be careful of me because I may turn on them. I may like all this. He only saw the bad outcome that I could have where there's another teacher, Southern Italian knife master I trained with, Cosimo Bruno, amazing guy. And he did this demonstration and he had all these knives laid out. And I'll never forget that the one that I was drawn to, to the point where I said, how much? And he said, it's not for sale. And I said, obviously, so how much? That one that I was drawn to, it's solely an assassin's tool. And so... I had no idea. I just, I loved it. I was drawn to it. And he looked at me and from then on, he calls me criminal. Wow. Because he could see that potential, but he also, it's in a loving, joking way because he knows and at the same time could see that I pursue good. I try to, so a great teacher, I think, sees that part of yourself. I I know in my students, I see what they can become. And so I can guide them in that direction, but they've got to do the walk. And the best teachers to me recognize that and cultivate that. That's really, really nice answer for an on-the-fly question. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. As we're recording this, we're still in the midst, despite what certain governments may say, we are still in the midst of a pandemic. 
situation is pretty tough. Most all countries are shut down to one level or another, some more than others. And for people like you who tend to do stuff with others in public, on stages, in public venues, that type of thing, some of that work is probably not happening right now, I would guess. And so how has this ability to diversify the way that you share your knowledge and your expertise, how has it allowed you to keep working, to stay connected, to keep improving, to kind of keep driving in opportunities? How are you managing the crisis, basically? Yeah. So it was definitely scary. I had done a stunt job the week before, and I had just gotten a contract for three weeks of stunt work on a new NBC pilot. And we were only three days into that when it was shut down. And then within a little over seven days from that point, nine months of work disappeared. Oh my God. So everything for the rest of this year canceled, 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 right? I was supposed to be in Italy in mid May, then go and teach in France and then back to Italy. And like it was going to be amazing. And none of that happened. So, what that let me do is step back and go, okay, why am I doing this? What do I want? from this career and it let me see only by losing all of that one aspect of what I love about this art and it doesn't matter if I'm teaching or training it's that growth it's constant improvement and so when I'm teaching I love to make a correction and I love seeing a student be able to incorporate that and be better Mm -hmm. when I'm a student I love getting that correction implementing it and knowing that I'm better. And that is something that's pretty much gone from this kind of format. So what do I want to do with that? Every time we're thrown a curveball, we've got to either rise to the occasion or or fall, right? Yeah. And you're not going to win them all, but in this, it let me look at and start to get creative with what I do. And so now, thankfully for this technology, I have been able to continue to teach via Zoom, both the fencing as well as the stage and screen combat. Mm -hmm. So that's been helpful. I think the importance that I didn't think about until a time like this is really that diversity of income stream. Yeah. So it was awful to have most of my fencing work dry up, most of my fight directing work dry up. And I had a couple big contracts coming up in those areas that went away. Okay. But the books, they continued to come in. way that I taught, instead of just having teaching fencing at my fencing master's academy, I teach at two different universities. Mm. Well, one of those canceled class, but they continue to pay us. I was very grateful for that. The other one shifted all the classes to online. So manage that. So even the way that teaching happens having diversity in that. So it wasn't all just my studio and my space closing up. That's where a lot of martial arts schools are at. A lot of acting schools are at. So that has really made it more manageable. And then 
in order to rise to the occasion, trying to think creatively and outside of the box about how to use this technology to do what I do. Yeah. Yes, it's super interesting. One of the things we've been talking a lot about is taking the core value that you deliver, right? So what is the core thing that you do and Mm -hmm. boiling it down and then figuring out how to use the channels that you have available to you today to deliver it in new ways. And it sounds like you're really thinking about that and doing some great work. So thank you for sharing. Jared, this was amazing. I've learned a ton and I've got so many ideas that I want to go explore a bit further. So I appreciate you taking the time and sharing this with us and best of luck with everything. And thank you. Thanks. It was great. Love to chat anytime. (laughs) Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks again for joining me for this episode of Forever Employable Stories. If you enjoyed the show and learned something new, tell a friend. The best way you can help us grow is to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and send this episode to someone you think can benefit from it. As always, feel free to reach out and connect on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Do you know someone who has a great Forever Employable story? Someone who has built a platform and an audience using their unique skills and experience? If so, I want to talk to them. Send me a note at jeff at gothealth.co and let me know.